0: loud voice, uh, which means in Aramaic, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what Yeshua is doing here is he's actually quoting uh, verse 1 of Psalm 22. And this is a standard Hebraic way of referencing uh, the entire Psalm. Indeed, the Psalms were not originally numbered. Uh, so you couldn't reference it by saying Psalm 22. Uh, no, rather you, you'd quote the first line. Uh, And as we'll see, he quotes the last line as well, further reinforcing his reference uh, to the entire psalm. So his Hebraic listeners uh, who knew the psalms would have immediately referenced the entire psalm in their minds uh, when they heard Yeshua cry out these words. Uh, Now this psalm was written by King David in the 10th century uh, BC, around a uh, thousand years before Yeshua. And in traditional Jewish thought, uh, this psalm is seen as prophetic. Indeed, uh, Rashi himself, who's the, probably the most well-respected of all of the Jewish commentators, this Rabbi Rashi from the Middle Ages, he wrote that David described the Messiah's suffering in Psalm 22. So even the Jewish rabbis are admitting this is, all, is a prophetic psalm about the suffering of the Messiah. Uh, and we'll put it on the overhead, this is what Rashi writes about Psalm 22. I'm, I'm referencing him because in Judaism, if you talk to a Jew and witness to them, this is their, their, their foremost commentator. He, he, he writes, it was because of the ordeal of the son of David, which is the name for, Jewish name for the Messiah, uh, that David wept saying, he quotes Psalm 22, 15, my, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death. So Rashi is acknowledging here that Psalm 22 is all about the Messiah. The, and he, in fact, is even quoting an earlier uh, Jewish source from the eighth century, this Midrash Pesikta Rabati, which goes on to describe how Messiah will suffer uh, for our sins, as described in Psalm 22. Uh, and we know that this is not historic, this Psalm, about King David, uh, because uh, there's no event in King David's life that fits the events described in Psalm 22. So, so David wrote it, but, but it's not about him. It's prophetic. Uh, it's about Jesus, uh, the Messiah. Uh, and Yeshua, he quotes, Psalm, he quotes verse 1. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, throughout the Gospels, Yeshua is always referencing God as his father. This is the only time in the entire scriptures where he does not. Instead, he simply says, my God. There's a sense of distance here. And then he says, why have you forsaken me? So let's walk through this entire Psalm. Uh, So let's begin in verse one, uh, Psalm 22, verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my, my cries of anguish? Yeshua is being forsaken because he's taken our sin upon himself. Those with sin cannot stand in God's presence. God must judge sin so the Father turns his back on his Son. God's wrath falls on Yeshua as he becomes our sin and guilt offering. God abandons his Son. He's being rejected so that we can be accepted. And Yeshua conquers sin and death and he overcomes, and he's brought back, uh, he's victorious, the resurrection proves uh, that God the Father accepts his sacrifice. Yeshua is vindicated. The forsaking, therefore, is only temporary. The darkness over the land is only temporary. So on the overhead, Yeshua says, why have you so forsaken me? For two reasons. Number one, he's being forsaken because he's becoming sin for us. And number two, because he's fulfilling Psalm 22. Drawing our attention to this psalm. That's why he, he cries this out. So, the next verse, beginning in verse 2, Psalm 22, verse 2. My God, my God, uh, my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Uh, for the fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. They cried out to you, and were delivered. They trusted in you, and were not put to shame. The psalmist here emphasizes God's holiness. So when he says, Why have you forsaken me? He's not saying God is unholy. There's a tension here. Indeed, God forsakes him because God is holy. Yeshua becomes sin for us on the tree, so God the Father, in his holiness, must forsake him. Yeshua is forsaken so that you won't be, so that I won't be, uh, so that you and I might be forgiven. He, sets, he set aside so that we may be brought in. And then look at verse 6. Uh, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by, scorned by everyone and despised by the people. The idea here of being a worm is being lowly and pathetic and despised and reproached and rejected. And this is exactly what happened to Yeshua. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Uh, Now, the word here used for worm is is really interesting. It's not the normal Hebrew word for worm, which is the word uh, rima. Instead the word used here is tolaat, or sometimes tola, tola. And the the scientific name for this worm is Coccus illesis, or kermes illesis. And the Temple Institute in Israel recently got a shipment in of these worms. Uh, The worm is also known as the scarlet or crimson worm. The colors crimson and scarlet are deep blackish red, uh, the color of blood. Uh, These worms were used to make the red dye to color the high priest's robe, uh, and the dye used on the ram skins to create the coverings of the tabernacle in the wilderness. These worms were used to make a very intense red dye, a symbol of the blood of the covenant and the blood of atonement. But what's even more amazing is the life cycle of this particular worm. Uh, when, the, when the female worm is ready to, to lay her eggs, which happens only once in her lifetime, uh, she climbs up a tree and attaches herself to it. The worm basically gets stuck there and creates a hard crimson shell around itself that hardens uh, and glues securely to the tree. Then she lays her eggs uh, under her body, uh, under this protective shell. The eggs hatch and are born, and for the next three days, The baby worms feed off the living body of the mother worm. Uh, After three days, the mother worm dies. And her body excretes a a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she's attached. So there's now a red stain on the tree. And the dye also stains the baby worms as well. The baby worms remain crimson colored for their entire lives. Uh, On day four, uh, the tail of the mother worm pulls up into her head forming a a heart-shaped body that's no longer crimson, but has now turned into a snow-white wax that looks like a patch of wool on the tree, and then begins to flake off and and drop to the ground like snow. Note the symbolism here with Yeshua fulfilling Psalm 22. Like the tola'at worm, Yeshua went up on a tree. Like the worm, he's physically attached to the tree, Uh, and he died. His blood stains the tree, the cross, crimson red. He dies so that we, by feeding off of his sacrifice, might live. His work, like the worms, is completed on the third day. Like the worm, three days later, Yeshua is not to be found. The tomb is empty. Just like the shell of the mother worm is now empty. And just like like the baby worms, we are now covered by his blood. Just as the mother worm, when crushed, excretes a a crimson scarlet dye that that covers both the baby worms uh, and marks them, Yeshua also was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. Uh, His scourging, the nails driven into his hands and feet, brought forth his crimson scarlet blood uh, that washes away our sins and marks us as his own. And just as the baby worm is dependent on the mother worm, for the crimson dye to give it life and to mark it. A repentant sinner must likewise depend on the blood of Yeshua for the forgiveness of our sins, to receive new life and to be marked as his own. And once the scarlet worm dies, it turns white as snow, looks like a patch of wool. What an amazing picture of Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, that it's reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, and they say the same Hebrew word here is for the word tolaat, same word for the worm. They shall be white as snow. Though they would be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Amazing. Let's go to the next verse, Psalm 22, verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. They say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him, let, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. We see this fulfilled in the crucifixion as Yeshua is insulted and mocked and reviled and ridiculed uh, and and, and insulted, reviled and mocked on the cross. Indeed, this is uh, literally, uh, this verse is actually quoted by Yeshua's enemies. Look at Matthew uh, 27, 39. Those who pass by hurl insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, uh, You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers, Torah teachers and the elders mocked him. He saved others. He he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let let God rescue him now, if he wants him. For he he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the the, uh, rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. See, Yeshua fits Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8 perfectly. He's the one who's mocked and insulted the chief priests and and the Torah teachers. They even quote verse 8, Psalm 22, verse 8 again. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. They say this probably without even realizing they're actually quoting this verse. So the picture here in Psalm 22 is one who's suffering. It appears as if God uh, no longer approves of him, even though in the past it was thought that that God did approve of him. This completely fits Jesus. Verse 9. Yet you brought me out of you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even from my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my womb you have been my God. Interestingly, in these verses here, we have a birth, we have a mother, but no human father is mentioned. Perhaps here a hint of, of the virgin birth. Uh, verse eleven: Don't be far from me, for troubles near, and there's no one to help. Again, this fits the crucifixion, as all of Yeshua's disciples abandon him. And they fled. There was no one to help. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear at their prey. They open their mouths wide against me. It's typical in Hebraic poetry to use animals as metaphors for people. Uh, the bulls of Bashan refers to powerful people, powerful like bulls. And people who are in power, this was especially referring this, ref- this reference to this idiom referring to the Edomites. And Interestingly, King Herod was an Edomite So again, this fits Yeshua's crucifixion Even though it was written a thousand years before The Edomites were king Verse 13 says The roaring lions open their mouth against me The Hebrew here for open mouth Or for gape uh, Means to bite as, as, if a, as a ravenous animal uh, Like a lion To grab and to pull at its meat At its food And we'll get back to more on this metaphor a bit later Verse 14 "I'm um, Poured out like water all my bones were out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. The text says, this person's bones, this doesn't go up, does it? Thank you. Uh, it says, the text says, this person's bones are out of joint. Uh, medical doctors have, have detailed what happens when someone's crucified. This verse is a vivid and, and medically accurate description, dramatic picture of death by crucifixion. Uh, when your hands and feet are nailed to the cross and your hands are stretched out, uh, your body weight begins to pull you down. Uh, and they begin to tug and pull and eventually dislocate your shoulders. And it pulls and it expands your ribs so that your, your lungs no longer stay in the open position. Uh, you can't exhale, exhale properly. You have to push up on your feet in order to breathe, which is incredibly painful. This is why the Romans would often break uh, the person's legs so they can no longer push up and exhale. exhale thus speeding up their death, and they die of asphyxiation. So this reference here to my bones are out of joint perfectly describes what actually happens on the cross. The Hebrew word for out of joint means to spread out, literally. It means my bones are spread out, exactly what happens on the cross. I'm poured out like water. Physically and emotionally, Yeshua is poured out. Uh, He sweats great drops of blood the night before. He's kept up all night with three different trials before the Sanhedrin, Uh, before Herod and before Pilate. Uh, He was beaten mercilessly. His flesh is ripped apart. He's poured out. His blood is literally being poured out. He's been dripping blood all over Jerusalem for hours. There's his blood at the court of the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish uh, parliament, Uh, blood in in Herod's court, Uh, blood in Pilate's courtyard, blood on the way to Golgotha, so much that he faints trying to to carry the cross. Blood at the, his blood at the cross itself, his hands and his feet are nailed, he's being poured out. And note that this blood is spilled in both Jewish and Gentile courts because Yeshua's blood is for everyone. He died for all. His sins cover all our sins. His, his blood covers all our sins. Uh, and the text says, poured out like water. In crucifixion, your lungs fill up with, with water and you die of suffocation in your own fluids. Verse 14. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. In crucifixion, you can also die of heart failure or even of a a ruptured heart. Yeshua's heart was literally ruptured. It's the Roman spear in the side. pierced him and outflowed of blood and water. Verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, which means a a broken, dried up piece of pottery. Uh, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. In crucifixion, you suffer what's called hypovolemic shock, uh, which is caused by sudden and excess loss of blood. And the symptoms include dehydration, incredible thirst, your tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth. Again, Yeshua fits this perfectly. On the cross, he cries out, I thirst. The result of this is that the person being described in Psalm 22 is brought to the dust of death. Now, this fits beautifully and poetically what Genesis talks about. When God says in Genesis 2:17, uh, in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Uh, they eat of the tree, uh, and God says to Adam in Genesis 3:19, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, from, from, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and, and to dust you shall return. So dust is a cinnamon, in the, cin- a cinnamon excuse me, <laughs> cinnamon of the Bible for, for death. Uh, A person described in Psalm 22 is laid in the dust of death. Again, this fits Jesus perfectly. Do You see how precisely everything in Psalm 22 fits Yeshua to a T. This Psalm is written by King David, but nothing in King David's life fits this. This is not about the life of King David. It's It's prophetic of the Messiah. Verse 16, dogs surround me. Uh, a pack of villains villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. S- strong bulls are, are powerful people. we talked about dogs are as a metaphor for despicable people. Uh, excuse me, Gentiles, <laughs> pagans, Romans. Uh, this makes it clear the psalmist here is describing a public execution. They surround him, powerful leaders, despicable people. They're surrounding him. The text says there's a whole pack or a whole congregation of evil people coming against him. Uh, It's public, just like in the Gospel accounts, a public execution. And they pierced my hands and my feet. This can only be describing a crucifixion. Now remember, this time was written about 1000 BC, the 10th century BC. Crucifixions had not even been invented yet. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in about the 4th century BC and then later perfected by the Romans to make it even worse. But David here is prophetically describing in great detail this later execution process of crucifixion. Now, you need to know, in case you ever want to witness to a Jewish friend of yours, this is probably the most controversial verse in the entire psalm because of a textual issue in the Hebrew text called the Masoretic Text. And you need to be aware of it so you're not taken by surprise, and you you can address it. It comes down to actually one letter in the Hebrew. It's it's Ka'aru versus Uh, Ka'ari. Ka'aru means they pierced, or they dug out, or they bore through. Uh, Ka'ari means like a lion. Uh, All of the non-Mesoretic texts, uh, the the main text today in in Judaism is the Mesoretic text, but all the non-Mesoretic texts read Ka'aru, they pierced. And most, however, of the Masoretic text, but not all of them, read Ka'ari uh, like a lion. So the difference is, is this one Hebrew letter, this small little letter vav. The letter vav is, is a long line with a little, to the left, a little uh, horizontal bar to the left, almost like you're playing hangman. It's a little bar and then a long line. That's the letter vav. Uh, it means they pierced. The letter yud, you take out that long line. Uh, you know, all you have left is a little jot at the, at the top, top of the letter. That's the letter yud. It means like a lion. So this variant reading is most likely due to a scribal error. Uh, if, for example, if you had the letter vuv, long, with the long line, they pierced, but some ink flakes off the page, the vav easily turns into a, a yud. That is, uh, they pierced easily transforms into like a lion, uh, due, to the, due to this aging process. Indeed, it's one of the most common of all scribal errors. Uh, transposing or tra- or transforming a vol- letter vav vol- into a letter yud comes up all the time in textual criticism, uh, just uh, not just in this one verse here. Uh, we put it on the overhead. It can be due to all these different different methods, different reasons. It can be due to sloppy writing, uh, ink fading, ink peeling, uh, the parchment flaking off, the parchment being worn away or torn. Uh, but the opposite almost can never happen. A yud. Lengthening and mistakenly becoming a vob is far less common. So if the original was like a lion, uh, then becoming they pierced, that's far less likely to to have happened. Uh, Now on the overhead, uh, the Masoretic text, uh, like a lion, is actually the more recent text. It's from the Middle Ages. Uh, The oldest text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hebrew, the Septuagint, Greek, the Peshitta, Aramaic, all read, they pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, And the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint both predate the time of Jesus. These are thoroughly Jewish texts. These are not Christian texts. And we also have actually 12 Masoretic texts, Hebrew texts, that were found that do read, they pierced my hands and my feet. So not even all the Masoretic texts agree. Moreover, this Masoretic text, like a lion, it, it doesn't even, it's not even a complete sentence. Uh, it contains no verb. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That's why the Jewish Bible say they will add extra words uh, in italics to make it a complete sentence, uh, to make it make sense. So many Jewish translations read, like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet. Or Rashi adds the words, they maul. Uh, Like a lion, they maul my hands and my feet. But the words they're at or they maul, they're not in the actual text. They're added in to try and fix this uh, awkward reading. But the older majority text reads, they pierced. It contains a verb, uh, they pierced, which makes perfect sense. They pierced my hands and my feet. This fits the crucifixion context of the entire psalm. But God has a sense of humor. Even if you take the later Masoretic reading, like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet. Think about the picture that's being painted here. What are, the, what is the lion, what are these lions doing? Are they kissing your hands and feet? <laughs> Uh, are, they, are they petting your hands and feet? No, it means they're ripping and they're tearing your hands and feet. Rashi himself is, again, this foremost rabbinic commentator, says it means they're mauling my hands and my feet. This is just a powerful picture of the crucifixion as they pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, because that's exactly what lions' sharp claws do. Uh, they pierce with big claws. Uh, the picture of a, of, a, of a lion here is the picture Here, is him ripping holes in one's hands and one's feet. Even as his shoe was hands and feet were pierced with the nails. So actually either reading is a vivid and powerful and accurate picture of crucifixion. Next verse, um, uh, verse 17. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat at me. The ability to see or to count one's bones fits the crucifixion. Number one, he's naked on the cross. Number two, the Roman scourging ripped away his flesh. Number three, the cross stretched him out. He can see all his bones. This text fits the description of crucifixion long before crucifixion was ever invented. This also brings up, by the way, Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb. The Torah is very clear, none of its bones could be broken. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 43. These are the regulations for the Passover meal. Do not break any of its bones. Yeshua could see his bones, none of them were broken, he could see them all, and unlike the, unlike the two thieves beside him, the Romans did not break any of his bones. The text also says, everyone stared and gloated at me. Again, this shows it was a public execution, just like Yeshua's crucifixion. Verse 18, they divided my clothes among them, they cast lots for my garments. This is actually two different prophecies being fulfilled here. The Roman soldiers, they first divide up, divide up his garments, but they don't want to divide or tear Yeshua's tunic, which is all of one piece. So they cast lots for it. So they divided his outer clothes, and they cast lots for his tunic. Look how precisely this is fulfilled. Look at John nineteen twenty-three. When the soldiers crucified Yeshua, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot. will get it this happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them they cast lots for my garments every aspect of Psalm 22 is literally fulfilled to the T in Yeshua's crucifixion Notice also the Romans they refused to tear Yeshua's tunic Yeshua is our great high priest the Torah in Leviticus 21 says the high priest cannot tear his garment Again, the scripture is fulfilled in Yeshua. Psalm 22, verse 19. But you, O Lord, don't be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, and the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the lion's mouth, uh, from the horns of the wild oxen. This is a plea for deliverance. Now, after this, the tone of the psalm shifts. Before it was, why have you forsaken me? But you're holy and I trust in you. And this is what's happened to me. Help, deliver me. And now it shifts. Here's the answer. Look at Psalm 22, verse 22. I'll declare your name to my people in the, in the assembly. I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And you descendants of Yaakov, of Jacob, honor him. We veer him, all the descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but he's listened to his cry for help. Now again, as we've seen, this person described here in Psalm 22 he's undergoing this horrific death and is finally laid in the dust of death. So then how can he now, in verse 22, say, I'll declare your name to my people. I'll praise you in the assembly. There's only one way this can now happen. He's alive again. The Lord rescued him through resurrection. and He now, he now exhorts all Israel to praise him. Why? Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He hasn't hidden his face from him. The Psalm starts off with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now we see that in the end, the Lord has not hidden his face from his son. He has not forsaken him. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of Yeshua, the afflicted one. But rather, again, Psalm 22, verse 24, he has listened to his cry for help. The Lord vindicates Yeshua and demonstrates this through the resurrection. So there's a temporary forsaking of this person, suffering in Psalm 22, but then ultimately deliverance and vindication and victory. This is an incredible picture of Yeshua in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. In verse 23, now all the descendants of Jacob of Israel are told to praise the Lord. And then in verse 27, we read this, not just Israel, but all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the Goyim, of all the nations will bow down before him. So now all the Gentiles, all the nations also praise the Lord. And it's Yeshua who has brought all the Gentile nations to the one true God of Israel, because Because of this event described in Psalm 22, not only only the Jews, but also the Gentiles will worship the Lord. There is no one else this psalm could be describing. Only Yeshua has brought all the Gentiles to the knowledge of the one true God of Israel. No one else has. Without Yeshua, the Gentiles would still be pagans. Israel would still be without her Messiah. If this psalm is not about Jesus, it's not about anyone. And then Psalm 22 ends with this in verse 31. He has done it. It can also be translated, he has performed it, or he has finished it. And because there's no impersonal pronoun in Hebrew, it can also be translated, it is finished. The exact words quoted by Yeshua on the cross. He quotes the beginning and he quotes the end of Psalm 22, that's clearly referencing the entire psalm. Yeshua has done it. Utterly, fully, completely, it is finished. So let's go back to the beginning of Psalm 22 and close by looking at some implications of Yeshua's famous cry in Mark 15, verse 34. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because by truly understanding this cry, we unlock the secret of who Yeshua is, who he truly is, and what he did for us on the cross. Yeshua's question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This question tells us two things on the overhead. First, it tells us about the infinity of his suffering on the cross. Yeshua doesn't say, by the way, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? Even though his friends have forsaken him. And in terms of his physical pain, his suffering, he doesn't say, oh, oh, my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. He doesn't say that, even though he has experienced excruciating physical suffering Uh, with his beatings by the temple guard, uh, by Herod's officers, the scourging by the Roman flagellum, which ripped his back to shreds, reducing it to a bloody pulp, uh, Finally, the nails driven through his hands and feet. Instead, we're told, Isaiah 52, verse 14, many were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. His form marred beyond human likeness. And yet, despite all this physical suffering, he says not a word about it. Not a word. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, but did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. But now, suddenly, here, he screams. That means something new is happening. There's a new kind of suffering going on. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? His physical suffering is nothing compared to this, because now the Father has forsaken him. My God is lost. Yeshua, having taken our sins upon himself, is suffering the judgment of that sin. Yeshua is going to hell on the cross, he is in hell. We're told in Mark 15:33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And in the Bible, the image of darkness is the image most used most often to describe hell, even more often than fire. So for example, we read in, in Matthew 22, verse 12. How did you get in here, my friend, without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside, into the darkness will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth the most common image of hell in the bible is outer darkness because god is a light and to be banished from the presence of god is to be thrown into the outer darkness now all of us have a sort of spiritual entropy in our heart it's called sin the physical world mirrors the spiritual world Three hours of physical darkness on the cross, the picture of the darkness that was happening within Yeshua's soul. He was being plunged into the outer darkness, into the abyss and the overhead. Because to be removed from the light of God, from the presence of God, is to go to hell. In this world, everything is winding down. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is moving toward random disorder. Uh, it's cooling off. It's spreading out. So for example, I take a chicken out of the oven, set it on your table. It's not going to get hotter. It's not going to even stay hot. It's going to get cooler. It's losing energy. Uh, It's also falling apart. After a few days, it's going to start to smell uh, and to decompose and get rancid and slowly disintegrate. And that's the picture of us, too, as we age, uh, only overhead. Uh, We're all falling apart physically. And likewise, the Bible says there's a spiritual entropy as well. There's a spiritual entropy in your heart called sin, and it's a mirror of the entropy, the physical entropy that's operating in the world. The scriptures say the world is subject to vanity, uh, to meaninglessness, to frustration. It's running down. It's breaking apart. And so is your soul. What's in your soul? It's sin, which means that you have a built-in tendency towards selfishness, towards self-absorption, towards self-justification, towards self-defense. And these things kill your humanity. It kills your ability to, your ability to love, uh, uh, to give love and to receive love. It kills you, your ability to have joy and to give joy. When you're in the grip of, of selfishness and self-pity and self-absorption, you know it. You can't give jo- joy or experience joy. You can't give love or-, or receive love. Now, the only reason we're not totally self-centered is that God, to some degree, is keeping us soft and warm and keeping our humanity from completely freezing over. He keeps us from the outer darkness. The Bible says this in James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, when there is no variation or shifting shadow. Yeshua is the light that enlightens all men, the Bible says. And the scriptures say the greatest and most just punishment we'll have is this. If you want to evade God, if you want to leave God, if you want to get away from God, do you know what the most fair punishment is? You want to get away from God? Success. On the overhead, he will give you success. C.S. Lewis says this. In the end, people who object to the the doctrine of hell have to be asked a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out our sins at all costs and give us a fresh start? Offering every miraculous help? But he's done so. To forgive them? But people will not be forgiven. To leave us alone? Oh, alas, that's exactly what he'll do. People who want to get away from God eventually will be allowed to. And when God totally removes himself, when when the sun goes away, humanity freezes. You're in outer darkness. You're in the abyss. You can't love. You can't joy. You can't know. And this is what happened to Jesus on the cross. Yeshua's son, S-U-N, went out. The father forsook him. Yeshua could no longer sense the the father's presence. He he, He could no longer feel God's love. He could no longer longer sense that God would ever come back to him. There was just silence and darkness from heaven. The Father was gone, and Yeshua's heart froze. He was plunged into the outer darkness. Yeshua went to hell. That's why his cry from the cross means, my God, that's what his cry means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The the ultimate punishment is to be banished from the presence of God, from from His glory, from the presence of His brightness, uh, from the presence of His love. God was gone. Yeshua cries out, that's what it means. Yeshua was sent to hell, and He went into infinite torment. But this cry from the cross doesn't just show that He went to hell. It doesn't just show that He took upon Himself our judgment, uh, that our sins deserved. It goes even beyond that, because Yeshua doesn't say, you have forsaken me. No, the person being forsaken, Jesus, is nonetheless saying, my God, my God. That has never happened before. It will never happen since. Now remember, what Yeshua is suffering is infinitely worse than a normal hell. On the last day, we read it in the book of Revelation about those who rebelled against God. It says Revelation 16, 15, and the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong and every, uh, every slave and free hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And what do they say? They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The great day of the wrath is, has come and who is able to stand? Notice we're not told on this last day people who don't want to be with God, who rebelled against God, that on on Judgment Day, it's not God who says to the mountains, fall on us, but they themselves say to the mountains, fall on us. No one has ever gone to hell who didn't want to. Milton in Paradise Lost perfectly captures this mentality when he has Satan, uh, fist in the air on the overhead, fist in the air, shaking at heaven, saying, better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's what everyone who goes to hell feels. Even Even though there's no one who rules in hell, and there are no slaves in heaven, it's all a lie. But that's what sin does. People will have their hearts so hardened, they will actually say to the mountains, fall upon us, and to the rocks, hide us, rather than submit to God. No one has ever gone to hell still crying out, my God, my God. Except one. Yeshua is the only one who ever said to God, who ever prayed to God, my God, my God, while being sent to hell, he's still praying. The word my indicates intimacy. There's only a limited number of people that uh, that I can address this way. I can say my Elizabeth, my wife, my Rachel, my Naomi, my daughters. This indicates these, these are the closest people to me in the world. At Mount Sinai, the Lord made a covenant with his people Israel. Entering into a personal covenant relationship, he said in Leviticus 26, 12, I'll walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Yeshua is clinging to the covenant, even as he is going to hell. And even as he doubles the phrase, my God, my God, which is a Hebraic way of emphasis, Yeshua is praying from hell. On the overhead, uh, in Moby Dick, Captain Ahab says, from hell's heart I stab at thee. Again, on the overhead, but Yeshua, in essence, says to the Father, From hell's heart, I love thee. He is loving God. He's loving the very God who's rejecting him. He's praying to the God who's sending him to hell. People who are sent to hell hate God, but Yeshua does the opposite. He's being forsaken by the Father, but he does not hate the Father. He's the only person who ever went to hell still loving God. The only person who ever went to hell within his heart, he still soft and open to God. And the overhead. No one has ever suffered like he suffered. And no one has ever loved the Lord like he did. And Yeshua always refers to God uh, as my Father or my God. For example, in his resurrection appearance, Yeshua says this in John 20, verse 17. I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Yeshua, he goes out of his way to refer to the Lord as my God, as my father. Why? Because his relationship to the father is so unique, it's utterly unlike anyone else's relationship to God the father. And that means there has never been a hell like this. Because there's never been a relationship like this between the father and Yeshua, between the, the, the one and only, his one and only son. The Son who is in the bosom of, with the Father from all eternity. John one eighteen. no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God uh, is, and is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And so for the Father to cast out his Son and for the, for the Son to voluntarily receive that means that the hell Yeshua experienced in just those three hours is far deeper than what anyone would ever experience for all eternity. He went to hell. He went to a deeper hell than anyone has ever gone on the overhead. And these words from the cross don't just teach us about the infinity of his suffering and the infinity of his love. They also teach us on the overhead the secret of his power. Because when he was being forsaken and thrown into hell and experiencing infinite pain that we can't even imagine, he stayed true. He kept praying. He held on to the covenant. He never gave up. When he died, he gave up his spirit, but he never gave up. He stayed in control. He's even quoting scripture to the very end. For Yeshua to cry out, my God, my God, he's centering on the intimacy. He's continuing to reach out to the Father. He's continuing to hold on to the covenant. This means that from hell's heart, I obey thee. Yeshua, he came as our substitute as our mediator, as our great high priest, as the Word made flesh, as the Shekinah glory of God incarnate, tabernacling with us. And even when God was forsaking him, he clung to the scriptures. Even on the cross, he's quoting the Bible. You cut him and he bleeds scripture. And he knows that the chapter 22 ends in triumph and victory and vindication. It starts out dark, but it ends in triumph. As we saw, it describes a public execution, but it ends with him saying this in Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Posterity will serve him. Future future generations will will be told about the Lord. They'll proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. On the overhead, Psalm 22 says somebody will be publicly executed in a crucifixion And when people remember it, the nations from the very ends of the earth will turn to God in gladness. And throughout the rest of time, throughout all generations, people knowing about this execution will turn and rejoice and praise God. Praise the Lord. And no one can can deny this happened with Yeshua. Yeshua's crucifixion and resurrection has turned untold millions of people from every tongue, tribe, people, race, and ethnic group to the one true God the God of Israel. Yeshua was true to God's word and to the covenant. Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel abandoned? Do you feel like God's not there? You need to see Yeshua stay true to you, to his own hurt. He did not forsake you on the cross. Yeshua took hell rather than forsake you. And if Yeshua loved you that much, That he would would not forsake you in spite of all God's judgment thrown on him. What makes you think he'll forsake you just because of something you've thrown at him? Because of your failure? No, Yeshua has not forsaken you. Yeshua was true to you. Now you be true to him. Trust in him, in his word. Love him, obey him, walk with him. There's now an open temple. The veil, it's torn in two. You can enter into God's presence through the blood of the Lamb. There's now an open tomb. Death is conquered. There's now an open heart. Even the centurion uh, uh, put his, his, his faith upon him. The centurion who put Yeshua to death had his heart melted and believed. Why was Yeshua forsaken? Answer it now in your own heart. For you. For you. Amen. Let's pray, hallelujah. Father, we thank you, Lord, for sending your son to suffer and be forsaken for us. Yeshua the Father forsook you on the tree so that we might be accepted. He abandoned you so that we might be adopted into your family. Yeshua, you suffered like no one else. You suffered infinite pain and torment and judgment and wrath as you became sin for us on the tree. Like that tola'at worm in Psalm 22, you were attached to the tree. You bled for us that we might have life. We live by feeding on you, even as a baby worms feed on the mother. Uh, and we carry the crimson stain for the rest of our lives. Though our sins are as scarlet, you make them white as snow. Though they'll be red like crimson, they'll be like wool. You, Jesus, literally went to hell for us. And yet you still loved the Father and obeyed the Father and were faithful to the covenant, even from hell. No one ever loved God like you. And when you completed the atonement, you cried out, it is finished. You were faithful to the end. Now, Lord, help us to be faithful to you in response. Because you were forsaken, we never will be if we repent and put our trust in you. Yeshua, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. You are our bridegroom, God. You are the lover of our soul. We commit our lives to you, even as you gave your life for us. And we pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.